This oscillation between declaration and petition can teach us perhaps simply this. Pray with your Bible open, as it were. Before you make a request, make a declaration. Before you run to the Lord with your need and with your anguish, confess something that you know is true from Scripture. So your prayers do not become self-centered complaining, but instead faithful offering of the Lord the depths of your soul in the context of faith knowing He is powerful enough to respond. Secondly, in the structure of this psalm, we note that Psalm 25 is the first of seven acrostic poems, acrostic psalms or songs within the Psalter. This is a method of writing that's foreign to us today, but was co more common in Hebrew poetry as a literary form. There's 22 verses, and I'm told in the commentaries that each verse opens with the first letter and the first verse, and chronologically so it follows. That is, each verse opens with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet chronologically. Why? Perhaps it's to illustrate in literary form the sufficiency and the scope of the sovereignty of God, a point we mentioned last week. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is A to Z and everything in between. Isn't that an amazing thought? But we see more not only is perhaps the scope of the providence of God and His sufficiency illustrated in this poem as a literary form, but we also see in the acrostic poetry and the rest of the Psalms in their parallelism and in their clarity that the acrostic psalms and indeed all the psalms represent completeness, symmetry, order, and the content. All of it represents a lawful deference to the character of the Almighty God. Psalm 119, perhaps the most shining and comprehensive example of this point. And it's in an it's, it in itself is an acrostic poem as well. It, these psalms represent a lawful deference to the character of Almighty God. Our Almighty God is orderly. He is complete within Himself. The triune God is fully satisfied within the fellowship of the Godhead. He is orderly. He does things according to a pattern for a purpose. He governs this whole earth and not an atom lies outside of His power and control. Thus, the Psalms represent in their completeness, symmetry, order, content, parallelism, emphasis, and clarity a lawful deference to the character of the Almighty God. In answer to the question, what expression of the soul might be worthy of the favorable attention of the Lord of glory, we can learn something about how Psalm, from how Psalm 25 is structured in the rest of the Psalms. Art, when it's in its best, I feel, and most redeemed form, taking these principles to heart, should emphasize, clarify, declare, and illustrate the beauty of our God. Herein lies a, re, a, a vision within the Psalms to redeem expressions of the human soul that they might be worthy of the favorable attention of our God. One of the artists that I now I repent before you and say, Lord, in the spirit of Psalm 25, 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. One of the artists in my past history of dabbling in art that I venerated, that I lauded, saw as amazing, singular, classical artist would have been Michelangelo. My opinion since has changed. Why, you ask? If you look at the history of art and artistry and you use Michelangelo as an example, there is a conversation that's recorded. I wasn't able to verify original source, but I've heard it cited before. There is a conversation that Michelangelo is reported to have with one of his instructors that I submit to you is more profound than any piece of artwork he ever created. And the conversation went something like this. At a certain point in time, his, one of his teachers, instructors, or mentors, or so on, within the craft of art, asked him a, a very important question. Michelangelo, why are you beginning to paint hu the human body naked? 
To which he answered, I am determined to paint, or I have decided to paint the human body. I've decided to paint man as God sees him. To which his instructor very wisely responded, But Michelangelo, you are not God. You are not God. This begs the question, is the expressions from the pen, from the paintbrush, of a great artist that we consider technically above, without peer and whose classical works are held up as a standard for art so universally, generally in our culture, is the expression of his soul as it's portrayed on paper and canvas worthy of the favorable attention of the Lord of glory? Or did he paint with wanton treachery? Verse 3, Psalm 25. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. That is, lawless treason. That is, set themselves up to be a God. Instead of their expression of their soul, giving deference, lawful deference to the nature and character of God, if they move forward presuming to be Him, and undress man when God says the covenant conditions of this sinful world require a few things. And among them, from now on, aside from the covenant of marriage, man is to be robed and clothed. And if you are to undress him in your art, now your artwork falls into the category, category I believe Psalm 25 would condemn it as wantonly treacherous. That is, a lawless, devious treasonous violation of faith and confidence. Michelangelo, you are not God. Ken Carlton, you are not God. Hold the expression of your soul accountable to what the Psalms demonstrate would be, a worthy, would be worthy of the favorable attention of the Lord of glory because nothing escapes his attention. And either his attention is turned on his creatures in a favorable and a blessing manner, or his attention and preservation of his glory is turned on his creatures in judgment. And there is no gray area. There is no middle ground. We may wish it so. It may seem so to us. There may be ethical dilemmas, and I may not be parsing or you know, splitting the hairs correctly, even in my commentary here, yet the Word of God stands according to righteousness and lawlessness, and there is no gray area between them. There is no neutrality in a world and a universe that is created by the God who exudes holiness as an attribute of His character and whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning. And may I bow before that holiness and say, whatever is virtuous, praiseworthy, of good report, honorable and in the spirit of this psalm full of mercy and steadfast love and may i humbly accept your righteousness may i defer to your law structure may i represent humility and deference to the character of the almighty in order that i may not be guilty of wanton treachery a lawless and devious treason violation of faith and confidence in god almighty and may the expressions of our soul be worthy of the favorable attention of the Lord of glory. And herein is one example, perhaps, of how the Psalms can not only sanctify our prayer, but sanctify all, if we follow their model, expressions of the human soul. That is, the Psalms carry within them at least the implicit vision, if not explicit, depending on how you take them and where you read, vision for redeeming the arts as a tool in man's hand to offer worthy incense and worship before his throne. Structure and biblical artistry. Point number two, shame presupposing the glory of God. And verses one through three, we might ask ourselves in our, ourself in a re relatively shameless culture, why shame is an important concept to be attached to sin. And I believe it could be stated this way, it's because it presupposes the glory of God. That is, shame for wrongdoing in light of what God declares as righteousness confesses the foolishness of sin and the inevitable vindication of God's glory. David felt the weight of this. 
Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me or the sake, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And he knew that if there was not a way made for his shame to be dealt with, some way through the steadfast love, faithfulness, and the covenant, ultimately the grace of a loving God, he stands before the holiness of God, wicked, condemned, and ashamed. A man acquainted with sin, a man who knew what it was like to be a murderer, a thief, an adulterer, and a perjurer before the God of holiness, the God who is holy in the Lord of glory. Shame confesses the foolishness of sin and inevitably that the vindication of God's glory must happen. A cross-reference for you to visit on your own time, Jeremiah 6, verse 13 through 21 Another pastor was preaching, Danny uh, referred to me a message Troy Dobbs was preaching on the issue of so-called homosexual marriage, and he brought up a text, it was either from Jeremiah 6 or Jeremiah 8, it echoes this, virtually the same words. It says that my people have lost the ability to blush, they are shamelessly sinning, they do not feel the appropriate emotions for their actions anymore and thus judgment is proclaimed in the form of soon coming inevitable imminent exile unless repentance came and the hearts of the people were set right again i would like to advance this uh, definition for you in light of psalm 25 we move from shame which is what an unbeliever feels when he's come to the reality of his sin, to humility, which perhaps could be understood as the forgiveness of shame not taken for granted. What is the humility that David refers to? It could perhaps be described as the forgiveness of shame not taking that forgiveness for granted. David says again, good and upright, verse 8, is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. When we realize the guilt that our sin deserves and then we realize the grace that has set us free from its consequences. Ultimately, its consequences being hell and God's wrath eternal. We are set free to be humbled. We are not set free to sin again without a second thought. No, never let it be said. What? Should I sin that grace would much more abound? No, humility is recognizing that I am a sinner saved by grace. It's realizing that there is forgiveness in the shed blood of Christ, but forgiveness that does not forget that sin is shameful. Shame is also the antithesis of presumption. Imagine this analogy, if you will. The President of the United States, never mind who it is, anyone, just think of the office as relatively austere and important, the leader of the free world, right? Importance of the office. He walks around the corner and there sitting in the Oval Office at his desk with his legs crossed up on the desk reading a comic book on the phone on a secure line posing to be the president as a rebellious teenager off the street ordering pizza. That is a picture of presumption. This individual is out of place. He does not have the right to be there. He is posing to be someone he is not. He is taking authority that is not duly his. He is going on in a wantonly treacherous manner with no thought to the consequences of his endeavor. When we are interested in kingdom conscious prayer, it's so important that we understand our position under our Lord Jesus Christ so that the attitude of our request and that the attitude of our prayer is not that of a rebellious teenager that sits at the desk of Almighty God in his throne room, puts our feet up and reads a comic book and says, oh, you know, dials on the phone and says, oh, by the way, I'd like to have a pizza. I'd like to be rich and famous. I'd like you to take all my cares away. I'd like you to give me a happiness and peace and prosperity and security and hope and be everything to me that I've always dreamed would be fulfilled and just help me to get money and wealth and riches and fame and whatever else is the value structure of our day. When we read the model prayer in its context in Matthew 5, verse 7, 
Jesus Christ is very clear. He says that no man can serve two masters. He says that you cannot serve God and mammon or money. There is a hierarchy of loyalties within the kingdom of God. And loyalty number one is to our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we step out of the bounds of humility and pray as if we have earned or deserved something, we are that presumptuous teenager who stepped over the bounds of propriety and right and are claiming something that is not ours. It is the height of presumption to ask the Lord for anything without first realizing that it is only available by the purchasing power of Jesus' blood and humbling ourselves before that earth-shattering, humbling reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom conscious prayer moves forward in humility, and kingdom conscious prayer repents of presumption. Point number three, surety, appeal, and confession. Reading again in Psalm 25, verses 4 through 6. Make me know, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. We'll go to verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And briefly and in review, three things we can learn perhaps from these four verses under surety, appeal, and confession. What is the role of God's law in prayer? God's law appears time and again in the Psalms. God's law can be understood in this context as His declared standards of truth and righteousness. Well, the role of God's declared standards of truth and righteousness in prayer is to provide for us surety that we are asking for the right things and that we'll know the true answers when we receive them. David says in verses 4 and 5, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. That is, it is a priority in prayer that we conform our requests to what God says are worthy things to pray for. Teach me your paths. David doesn't ask for his wants without first asking that those wants would be conformed to what God says he needs and ought to desire. Lead me in your truth and teach me you are the God of my salvation. So surety that the answer is worth asking for and that the answer has come comes from recognizing the role of the law in prayer. It provides surety of answerable prayer. God's standards of righteousness within His Word provide surety for answerable prayer. Am I praying a prayer that ought to be answered presuming God is holy and presuming His Word? Often we are too quick to bring our wantonly treacherous wants before the Lord of glory, before holding them accountable to His Word. And if we don't feel very versed, spend a lot more time meditating. And then just make it that simply a matter of prayer. Lord, help me conform in my kingdom conscious prayer life that I'm striving to grow in, in the things that I ask for, to the things that you would have me desire. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that you do need and should bring to him by way of petition will be added unto you. Secondly, appeal the role of covenant in prayer. Remember your mercy, O Lord, verse 6, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. David is making, as his strongest appeal, God's promises that eclipse the framework of his own life. You have made promises according to your covenant that go all the way back to Abraham, even before. And these promises will go on beyond me, as you have said, Lord, that a child will be born from me who will one day be the Messiah. So hear David writing it as the lineage of Christ. He is asking or he is incorporating the covenant in his prayer. In prayer, the covenant of God, that is his promises according to his will that he reveals in his scriptures, provide the strongest basis for our appeal. And David incorporates the covenant as the strongest answer this prayer for this reason. You might ask this question, what right do I have to ask the Lord of glory for anything? What right do I have? Well, make the basis of your appeal his covenants, you won't go wrong. 
Don't make it some independent, autonomous thing that you came up with without visiting God's bigger, providential, glorious, covenantal picture that goes so far beyond you. The answers to prayer in your life ought to be seen in the bigger picture of God's revealed will. Surety, appeal, and finally confession. What's the role of confession in prayer? Well, simply this, it holds us accountable to the other two. Father, I confess that I have prayed prayers, wanted things, asked for things, and lived in according to desires that don't line up with your scriptures. Forgive the sins of my youth. Father, I confess that I have held other things and plans and visions for the future in higher esteem than your covenant. The role of confession and prayer holds us accountable to God's righteousness and covenant terms. Surety and appeal and confession ought to be elements of kingdom conscious prayer ought to be integrated in and thoroughly woven into and and shape the things that we pray for. And over time, as our sanctification incorporates them more, the growth in faith and obedience will give us a glorious vision for a prayer life that will also grow and manifest more clarity in biblical truth and efficacy, if you will, according to these standards. Now, the final three points, the signature of biblical prayer, signs of fear and favor, and enemies of the soul. The signature of biblical prayer. Let's read verses 8 through 11 again. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. Notice verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And again, David doesn't ultimately say, for the future of my well-being, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Though his future and his well-being certainly depends on God's pardon. But there's a higher calling in prayer and view here. It is not David's namesake. It is the namesake of God Almighty, a far superior signature of biblical prayer. We are taught to pray, and rightly so, in the name of Jesus. But if your tendency is like mine, more often than not, I use that as a rubber stamp at the end of a relatively unconscious prayer. The name of Jesus ought not be a rubber stamp at the end of a wantonly treacherous prayer. Oh, dear God, I pray for this and that and the other without thinking too much about it biblically and stamp it at the end in the name of Jesus' name. Now you're obligated to answer. All right, and then I go on about my daily business, having checked in my time clock with God. This is not a vision of the signature of biblical prayer. Instead, if God were to answer this prayer, let's ask this question or let's hold our prayers accountable to this standard. If God were to answer my prayer, would it provide Him the opportunity to manifest His goodness and uprightness? Look again, good and upright, verse 8, is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. First of all, the sinner must be instructed in the way, then he begins to pray that the way would make, its, would make its way into its heart, that he would walk in it, and that kind of prayer, when it's answered, is an opportunity for a God, for his name's sake, to manifest his goodness and uprightness. If blessing you for your sake is the motive force of your prayer, then it provides God the opportunity to advance your glory. That is not a kingdom conscious prayer. But if you surrender your requests and your motives for praying to pray things that are according to the way that God instructs sinners in, then your request will provide the opportunity for God's name to be made great by manifesting His goodness and uprightness in answering your request. Secondly, in verse 9, David continues, He leads the humble in what is right, and, leads the, and teaches the humble his way. And again, here we have sown in within this prayer the idea of humility, which we mentioned before, is the forgiveness is, humility is forgiveness of shame, but not taking that for granted. 
And that really is the heart that we need to have as we begin to ask God to shape our prayers and as we sign them with the name of the Lord as its signature instead of ourselves. Verse 10 we read, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. And again, we could consider a phrase like this, If God were to answer my prayer under the present circumstances, does the orientation of my soul provide Him opportunity to manifest steadfast love and faithfulness for His name's sake? You might ask, what is that orientation of the soul? Reading again a little more carefully, in verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. So there is a condition here to the degree that God answers our prayer in a way that will manifest steadfast love and faithfulness to our own covenant keeping and our own valuing of His testimony. What is the condition of the soul that we ought to be in in a kingdom-conscious, prayerful mindset that will provide the opportunity when God answers our prayer to demonstrate these things, to demonstrate that He is steadfast in His love and faithful. Well, it is keeping His covenants and His testimonies, providing Him the opportunity to have as when answering our prayer to demonstrate to the world around that this person is a, a recipient of the favor and love of the Lord in more in not wantonly so, but because their life has actually been living by increasing measure according to his covenant terms. This here I would submit to you in New Testament revelation as a vision for sanctification. As we grow in obedience and as we grow in faith, the position of our soul will provide us a more answerable situation. Now, if we walk in increased faithfulness to the Lord, obedience uh, to His commands, and a love and a value of His testimonies, is that something for us to claim by way of our own merit? Never let it be said. It is the Holy Spirit that works within us to will and to do of His good pleasure. But let us hold our prayer life accountable to the truths of James that faith without works is actually dead. And doesn't it necessarily follow if there is no works that are evident in our life that our prayer life will also fall flat and begin to, w- to wane and also show the mark of more death than life. But as our faith, accompanied by works, that is the evidence and fruit of the Spirit inside, begins to take manifest foothold and increasing measure in our life, Our prayer life, our kingdom conscious prayer life provides greater opportunity for God's name to be manifest through his steadfast love and faithful answer to our prayers. The signature of biblical prayer is praying in his name's sake, for his name's sake, in the name of Jesus. And that means ordering our prayers and praying that our soul would be ordered as well so that we are positioned to glorify God when our prayer is answered. Now, what if we fall short in covenant keeping by this measure? It provides a hopeful answer for us in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. The role of confession and prayer, it comes back in again. There is an opportunity for God's glory to be made known and made great when the great and wicked or the the sinner who has such great sin is pardoned from his guilt before the Lord and graciously and gloriously for God's name's sake he is pleased to answer the prayerful cry of salvation after a sinner confesses with an answer through the blood of his son. And that's right at the beginning of Gospel 101. And Gospel 101 is here in this psalm, but also Gospel 102 and Gospel 103. As we begin to live in light of that truth, our prayer life can grow in dimension and it can be more glorious and powerful and the signature of biblical prayer will more often be signed to our confessions, our petitions, and our declarations. Number five, signs of fear and favor. Another 
way of maybe making this point is recognizing answers and receiving them rightly. Recognizing answers to prayer. What are signs of God's favor on my life? Many of us do not know the word perhaps well enough to even recognize what is a good thing. We've been praying that God would give us something. Maybe He's withheld it because we've asked amiss. But what are the signs of favor? How do we know that we can recognize this is a glorious answer to prayer? And then also fear. How do we receive them rightly? Well, briefly, favor in verse 12, these signs of favor. Uh, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. So spirit-inspired desire to discover and apply the Word of God. That would be a mark of God's favor on a man's life. Again, who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. That is, a man who fears the Lord will be instructed in the way that he should choose. Or another way to say it, perhaps, the Spirit inspires within the man who fears the Lord a desire to discover and apply the Word of God. That's a mark of fear. How do I know I fear God? Well, if there's a growing desire to discover and to apply the glorious words and truths of God. Another thing, in verse 13, how do I know that there is favor on my life, the, and his soul shall abide in well-being, verse 13 says, and his offspring shall inherit the land. A sign of God's favor here is really a picture of prosperity and longevity of legacy in posterity and growth of family. He says, his soul shall abide in well-being, his offspring shall inherit the land. One mark of God's favor as we take this in the greater biblical con context is the delegation of kingdom responsibility to the man that fears the Lord and the influence that he has as he interacts for God's name's sake. So as God gives us the ability to take charge over more of his kingdom and gives us influence as a parent to a child, this is a mark of God's favor on our life. One writer, one commentator was remarking on this passage in my reading saying that Canaan was the earnest for the whole covenant. Canaan was the earnest for the whole covenant. That is the picture of going into the promised land was something tangible and symbolic for God's people. Laying hold of the land was symbolic of laying hold of God's providential will for His big picture plan for His people for all of time. So in similar and poetic language as it's incorporated here, we can see that a man who has favor with the Lord, in verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. And the sign of favor then is that he's included in something bigger than himself. And in a very real sense, our children can continue that inheritance According to Acts, I believe, 3.29, the promise is to you and to your children and as many as the Lord our God shall call. And even if we don't have physical children, as it were, the delegation of responsibility for kingdom growth, great commission followers who go out and share <clears throat> God's name and make disciples and spiritual children for God's name's sake is also a mark of favor. And finally, in the, just marking in these, this short section, the marks of God's favor, as we read in verse 14, he says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. And here a revelation of restored fellowship and communion, or partaking, this is a glorious thought, in the interaction of the Trinity. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Recognizing answered prayer. If you have a greater ability as a consequence of the Lord answering your prayers to partake in the fellowship between you and Almighty God, that is the most glorious answer you could ever receive. And it is a mark, above marks, of the favor of the Lord. The Lord in the communion that the Father and Son shares Embodied, perhaps, we could think of it, in the person of the Holy Spirit. This glorious concept of the triune God and the completeness of fellowship within Himself. 
how God appreciates Himself and His image in the Son. And how that gloriously overflows in the embodiment of Himself in His Spirit who is pictured as the Lord in action and moving. This is a picture too profound for the human mind to quite grasp. But it is a picture of the friendship or the fellowship or the communion of the Lord. A greater appreciation and a partaking and a relating to that kind of love and communion with the Lord is for those that fear Him. It's a mark of God's favor above any other. A restoration of covenant. A restoration of what Adam and Eve lost and then some. Of what Adam and Eve lost and then some. The signatures, I'm sorry, the signs of fear and favor. Recognizing answers and receiving them rightly. We just talked about some of the greatest answers to prayer. Hopefully in everything we asked for, these are the things that shape our values. Even if we ask for bread for our daily needs, if we ask for clothing so that we might serve Him better, may we do so in the light of increasing His kingdom. May we do so in the light that the answer to this prayer, even for my daily bread, might increase my awareness of your provision for me, Heavenly Father, how you provide for me, your child, and so on. Signs of fear and favor are a mark of kingdom conscious prayer. And then in closing in this point, knowledge affirming the holiness of God. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Verse 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Verse 14, he said, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. He makes known to them His covenant. What does it look like when a man fears the Lord? What changes about his spiritual constitution? He makes known to him His covenant. What is that covenant? Those, these terms that David is speaking to. Well, I believe it's evidence in verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. He will pluck my feet out of the net. David is demonstrating the fear of the Lord inasmuch as he is showing a knowledge affirming the holiness of God. That is, David is conscious of the nature and character of God, and out of that consciousness flows the rest of his awareness of reality. David understands that the world, the flesh, and the devil represent a net, miry clay, a trap, a snare of the enemy that he will fall prey to, unless God intervenes sovereignly on his behalf. David, with his eyes, with the lenses over his eyes, being the fear of the Lord, is set free to understand what is freedom, what is bondage, what is laudable, what is glorious, what is to be shunned and thrown aside, what is to be embraced and worshipped. We won't see this apart from the fear of the Lord, it is a consciousness that God is the Lord of the universe and from His character proceeds loveliness and glory and magnificence. And from that being, we can then understand that if I'm left to my own devices, if I encounter the world only on natural terms, I will be hopelessly trapped by my existence and by my perception and by the way I'm wired in my sin. But if my eyes are ever toward the Lord, if I fear Him, that I will recognize the sin of my miry clay. I will pray, remember not the sins of my youth according to your steadfast love. Remember me. I will pray for your name's sake, O Lord, part of my guilt, for it is great. These are marks of the fear of the Lord. A knowledge, an awareness, a sobriety, and a discernment of your situation. That comes and stems from and is a consequence, a result, and a fruit of fearing the Lord, honoring Him, reverencing Him, and deferring to Him, as we mentioned before, as we were talking about the artistic expressions, a deference, a lawful deference to the character of the Almighty. Finally, what are the enemies of our soul? What should we really war and prayer against? David says in verses 16 through 21, Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. 
for I wait for you. Here David is recognizing perhaps two categories of enemies. Illustrated by these two phrases. First, troubles of my heart. Secondly, many are my foes. He's praying against two soul or two sources of anguish, anxiety, and affliction for his soul. On the one hand, in verse 17, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction, my trouble, and forgive all my sins. That being the inward enemy. That we are our own worst enemy in that regard. The things that would trip us up, that stem from within on our heart condition. But then on the other hand, on the external, the enemies without, David confesses in verse 19 and cries to the Lord, Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. I would invite you to consider the context of David's afflictions, the context of David's conflict in his life. Remember towards the end, as a consequence of his sin, the word says if you trouble your own house, you will inherit the wind, you will inherit the whirlwind. David troubled his own house. He was not faithful to the covenant of marriage I believe it says in the beginning of one of the Samuels as the coup by his son was about to unfold that David never even uh, led him through in a disciplinary way to ever feel bad about himself. That is, David never instructed Abijah in righteousness from the Word of God such that his son recognized his sin, felt shame, confessed and repented, and then with humility thanked God that he was steadfast and Loving, in his loving kindness and faithful to forgive those who fear him and in that heart bring their shameful sin and ask that he would pardon it. David's sons never realized that because he never gave them that opportunity in his parenting, it seems we are told. As a consequence of this, David certainly reaped the whirlwind and the enemies from without, more often than not, were because or a consequence of the enemies within. This psalm may have been written later in David's life. And man, you can imagine the anguish, the stress, and the tears that would overflow from the heart of a man who had to take up arms against his own son. His own son was about to threaten the legitimacy of the throne of Israel. And this was not his mere posterity and name that he was fighting for, no. He was fighting for the Lord's namesake. Do you remember David's heart in this regard when Saul took up arms against him? He refused to reciprocate in like manner. Why? I will not touch God's anointed, even if God's anointed will take up sword and chase me down. But what if the enemies of God's anointed are within your own household? Imagine the anguish and the stress that would put David in. And now in that context, you can see how his emotion spills forth in two part. There are enemies without, but there is a greater enemy within, and more often than not, the venom of sin within the soul is responsible for the vengeance of sin that is without. May we take David's pattern to heart. Consequences of sin are a reality. Ultimately, ultimately, as far as hell goes, the believer is delivered from the consequences of them. But in this life, there are a lot of times in God's providence a lot of things to reckon with as we go through life. And only the Word of God and only a psalm like Psalm 25 provides us the clarity, the discernment, and the biblical grounds for how to fight those battles. Those battles are best fought recognizing that our enemies of our soul are two-part. They are within and they are without. William uh, Secker, I believe is how he pronounced his last name, a segment of his, this will appear later on the website this week under excerpts, I'll put the full quote an uh, excerpt was hit, of his was uh, written, was recorded in uh, Charles Spurgeon's The Treasury of David, which accompanies my study in the Psalms. And he has this amazing quote and analogy. He says, A mariner casts overboard that cargo in a tempest, which he courts the return of when the winds are silenced. A mariner casts overboard that cargo in a tempest, which he courts the return of when the winds are silenced. And applying this to our concept here, 
If we pray only for deliverance from foes without, and we don't recognize the foe within, we might be moved to prayer when the consequences are felt from the outside in. But as soon as our life is easy again, and we're delivered from that threat on the outside, we go back to our wanton treachery, and we never mind the enemy of the soul. It's like throwing the cargo overboard. Oh God, I will serve you forever. I will serve you forever. If you just deliver me from this storm, I promise, I promise, I promise. And then the peace comes and you paddle back to all that cargo you threw overboard, which is stuff you should have abandoned anyway, and you bring it back on board and you crack open the bottle of licentiousness and laziness and carefree living and unconscious kingdom living and prayer life that is me-centered and self-centered pursuit of worldly things and a mammon and you drink deep from the pleasures of the world. How, what, how do we guard against that? By recognizing with David that kingdom conscious prayer fights enemies of the soul on two fronts, the heart and from without. How should we close this message? Verse 22 reads, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Now up to this point, as we mentioned last week, this prayer has been deeply personal. And even considering the context of David's life, it gives us good reason why it might be or why it sounds that way. David had deeply personal problems. Nevertheless, David closes this prayer with this curious break from the rest of the pattern, at least at first glance. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Isn't he praying, Lord, deliver me? Lord, I'm about to be destroyed. Lord, I feel the weight of my guilt. Yes, but in the end, he prays in summary and conclusion, and perhaps with a note of perspective that we can take in conclusion as to what does kingdom conscious prayer look like. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles, which begs the question, do we really prosper and consider our prayers answered if the kingdom of God, by certain measures, remains languishing. Do we really prosper and should we really feel comfortable like we're in, good, in a good place and thus motivated to move back from earnest prayer when we feel comfortable with our lives while the church of Jesus Christ may be hanging by a thread? Or when we may live in a culture or a kingdom of darkness where it seems like the opportunity to shine is great because sin is encroaching all around. But in order to shine, we must be earnest in prayer and never forget that the answers to prayer are not merely for our own benefit, but the greater name of Jesus Christ. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not just in my life. And according to the request I bring you in a small way, but let us see the big picture. Let us see our prayer life consecrated in light of God's purposes, not just in us and for us personally, but through us and with others, through His church, for the greater expanse of His kingdom beyond the personal struggles that we feel on a daily basis. That way we can pray with the final prayer of Scripture. I'm, saying, I'm talking the, the final prayer, the very last words of this psalm remind me of the last words of Revelation itself. We should be earnest in kingdom conscience prayer, conscious prayer until, Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And later, he who testifies, verse 20, to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. And there's this anguish cry, confession and declaration, proclamation and heart condition that is evidenced at the closing words of the canon that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His second coming, will be the consummation ultimately of His kingdom. And His kingdom subjects ought to remain earnest and faithful in prayer and servitude to that end until such day as the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and we will rule and reign with Him at the right hand of the Father. Bless Israel, O Lord, your kingdom purposes through your people. Let my prayers not remain small-minded and self-centered. Let me see myself as a dominion agent. Let me see myself as a kingdom emissary. Let me see myself as an ambassador of my Lord Jesus Christ, a foot soldier in this great 
in this great and certain and certain battle plan. The gates of hell will not prevail against that kind of kingdom conscious church because if the Lord be with you, who can stand against you? Let us pray this morning that our prayers and our lives would be kingdom conscious. Bow your head with me if you would. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you first in a heart of confession for those of us that feel the need. If we've been too self-centered, if we've been too small-minded in our life and in our prayers, we say cleanse us from that guilt for it certainly is great. And now by the help of your word as your spirit applies it and hopefully using this time today, we pray that you would conform our prayer and our lives to a kingdom consciousness. Lord, I pray that we would model your prayer, not just in form, but in substance. When you taught us to echo your words in their spirit and principle, blessed be you, O Lord. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then, Lord, out of that kingdom consciousness, let us pray for our needs to be met, that we would not be led into temptation, but we would be delivered from evil, all for your glory, all for your name's sake, looking forward to the day when we will celebrate the ultimate victory cry that will rise from the throats of every one of your blood-bought redeemed when every one of your enemies is vanquished forever. And then we will worship without the fetters of the flesh, unrestrained casting our crowns before your glorious throne, singing, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Oh, haste the day, Lord, and quicken us to occupy until you come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to close with one more song this morning. And as Aaron, pray, uh, as Aaron plays, I just encourage you to offer your heart to the Lord in prayer wherever this message finds you. And in a few moments, we'll close.
Amen. Hallelujah. We do worship your name, O Heavenly Father. And what a glorious privilege to do so with your people here this morning. We just thank you with overflowing grateful hearts for giving us these moments together. May we treasure them for the blood-bought gift they are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, I just want to uh, steal Josh and Sharon's thunder, if you don't mind. You can have a seat for just a moment. A couple of announcements. Not only do we have a, birth or a uh, pregnancy announcement, we got a birth announcement this morning. So if you haven't met the newest member of Providence Community Church, you have to stop by in the back, maybe one at a time. Don't be too loud because Rose Ione is just two weeks old, right? So praise the, what did I say? Ruth Ione. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah, that's close enough. She answers to either one, I'm told. So, no, Ruth, Ruth, sorry. So praise God, that's awesome. Um, just what a glorious answered prayer. Which is a reminder, if you would join us for 9 o'clock prayer Sunday mornings as the Lord leads, it really provides us the opportunity to share in each other's prayer requests. And then according to 2 Corinthians, we share in the answer when those prayers are answered. So those of us who were diligent to pray together morning prayer, 9 o'clock from Sunday for little Ruth Ion, got to share, I believe, to a greater degree in the joy because we pooled our hearts together in prayer. That's just one purpose of prayer, and I encourage you to join us for that hour prior to the service if you can. And it's been really great. So um, also, take a look at the website this week. Kari DiGiovanni gave her testimony last week. Absolutely moving. It may have been hard to hear. We had some sound problems. But if you get on the website and you click on testimony videos, you can put on the headphones and hear it uninterrupted in all of its clarity and amazing testimony to God's power. And uh, praise the Lord for that, that testimony. I'm looking forward to Gene and Marissa's. We might just have to give them the whole service by the sounds of it next month. So praise the Lord for that. Keep up with the website, providencecrosslake.com. As I mentioned, there's always an excerpt that we're trying to post each week that augments the theme of the message. Also, you can grab a copy of notes as you leave to your left, and on the bottom, there's a family worship schedule. So it's just um, some thoughts, themes and verses to reinforce the message with your family during the week, and just kind of a six-day idea framework for you if that's a benefit to you and you could use it. This Saturday, coming up, a uh, men's group will be taken here, placed here at the church. We're studying Law and Liberty, which is a group of essays on biblical law and order. Extremely interesting, and I think extremely necessary. Any of you men um, are welcome to join us. If you're among the courageous that set your alarms and actually listen to its voice very early on a Saturday morning. Uh, if you want to be on the text message reminder list for that, that'll keep you posted, uh, just talk to me. I'll put your name in and bother you bi-weekly with a text. Um, Ties and offerings and a box on your left as you leave, labeled as such. And I just encourage you to do that with joy, or give with joyful hearts that the Lord would uh, provide our needs. And it's just a privilege to partake in them corporately in that way. Next week, um, we are going to be in the second discourse in Samuel. I'm sorry, in Matthew. Um, and I am at a loss. I'm putting myself on the spot to give you, I think it's Matthew chapter 10, is going to be our text next week in case you want to study ahead. And uh, the second discourse in Matthew as we're going through those sections of Scripture. So just double check in here. That's correct, Matthew chapter 10. So God bless you as you leave. If you need to sign up yet to uh, bring a meal to Josh and Sharon to bless them during this time of adjusting to uh, life with children, um, there's a sign-up sheet in the back, I think.